Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. My name is Mark Arlapage, and you are listening to Entree Architect Podcast, where each week I speak with inspiring, passionate people who share their knowledge and expertise all to help you build a better business as a small firm entrepreneur architect. John Warlow, welcome to Entree Architect Podcast. Hey, it's good to be here, Mark. It's good to have you here, John. Uh, John Warlow is the founder of the Value Builder System, a simple software for building the value of a company used by thousands of businesses worldwide offered by a global network of independent advisors known as Certified Value Builders. The Value Builder System incorporates several diagnostic tools, including the Value Builder Score. Those businesses that achieve a Value Builder Score of 90 or greater are worth double the average performing business. John's best-selling book, you may have heard of it, Built to Sell, Creating a Business That Can Thrive Without You, was recognized by both Fortune and Inc. magazines as one of the best business books of 2011 and has been translated into 12 languages. John's the host of the Built to Sell radio podcast, ranked by Forbes as one of the world's 10 best podcasts for business owners. In 2015, John wrote his second best-selling book, The Automatic Customer, Creating a Subscription Business in Any Industry. I'm sure a bunch of ears just perked up. Architects are, are, are liking that idea of trying to figure out how to create a, a subscription business around what we do. It's the automatic customer creating a subscription business in any industry. Uh, and most recently, John completes his writing trilogy with his latest book, The Art of Selling Your Business, also a big topic, which is what we're going to talk about today, Winning Strategies and Secret Hacks for Exiting on Top. 
and per, prior to founding the value business, biz, the value builder system, John started and exited four companies. So we're talking to an expert here. One of them was acquired by a public company. That's a great background, John. I'm glad you're here because there are a lot of architects that can use the information that you have to share with us here. Um, architects are unique. We're a professional service provider. Um, most of us are providing our knowledge, selling our ideas, uh, problem solvers, creating solutions and selling those solutions. Um, so not a widget company, right? Mm -hmm. um, so it's a little bit more difficult for us. And none of us are taught business at all in architecture school at any level, never mind how do you value your business and figure out how to exit that business. Uh, so I, I want to jump into those topics with you and, and go as deep as we can in the time that we have. But before we that, I'd like to know a little bit more about you. I'd love for you to go back to when you discovered your passion for what you're doing today, uh, who or what inspired you to do that, and share that story. Share that story to where you are now. Oh, man. I, you know, I was running a professional services company as well. It wasn't an architectural firm. We did quantitative market research. But like a lot of architects, it was a custom job every time, right? Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, you know, unique specs, big clients, very demanding, uh, lots of emotion associated with the work that we did. And we worked with some of the biggest companies in the world. We, we had uh, Bank of America was a customer. Google was a customer. Apple was a customer. It was a real like kind of who's who. I walked, you know, I walked around on water thinking, or I felt like I was walking on water, feeling like I had this business that would be worth a truckload one day. Because everybody said, wow, look at your client list. Man, someone's going to want to buy your business to get access to all those great customers. And I went into, I, I, you know, my wife and I came to a point where we thought, you know, well, maybe we'll sell this company. And I went in to see a guy, his name is Perry Mealy, based in Toronto. He's an M&A professional, guy who sells companies. And I kind of, my hands were rubbing together saying, okay, what do you think it's worth, Perry? And <laughs> it, it kind of depends on the answer to a couple of questions. I said, shoot. He's like, well, like who does the research? And I'm like, well, you know, I'm involved in the research for sure. I mean, these are big customers, big projects. I've got to be, you know, hands on. It's okay. Who does the selling? I'm like, did I mention we work with Bank of America and you know, Google? I, I, I do the selling. I mean, I've got to be involved. And he said, okay. So you've got a research company where you're doing the research and you're doing the selling. And I'm like, yeah. And to give you some context, Mark, like we were probably a $5 million business, um, 30 employees, 25 employees, something like that. You know, margins were, you know, probably similar to an architectural firm, like somewhere between 20 and 30% every month, you know, good, healthy, bit of margins. So again, I was thinking, I'm waiting for the number. And, and Perry says, John, like, there's nothing to sell here. I, I can't sell your company. It's worthless. And I remember that that conversation like it was yesterday because for me, walking into that office, I thought I was sitting on a gold mine. And I left realizing I had built a business that was deeply dependent on me personally. And, and it was uh, it was worthless in the eyes of a professional who I trusted and respected. And so anyways, it triggered for me this sort of journey where I, I really want to understand, okay, how do I build this so it is valuable to somebody else? And we made some changes. We built a subscription model. We made, we hired salespeople. And ultimately it was acquired years later uh, by a publicly traded company, New York Stock Exchange listed company. But it was a, you know, so it has a fairy tale ending to it, but it was a very, very tumultuous time and, and, a, and a destabilizing time for me to learn that this thing I'd built had no value in the eyes of an acquirer. Yeah, and that's that's a very like, familiar story for architects, uh, except for the fairy tale ending, 
<laughs> I think a lot of architects, you know, build their firms on their own knowledge. They, a lot of them name the firms after themselves. Um, and so when they get to the end and they're ready to retire, there's nothing to sell. And so one of the things that um, young architects need to think about is what is that that process to build a company that is worth something beyond yourself uh, when you get to the time when you're ready to exit. And, and if you are further along um, and you're, lo- you're looking at that future and you're thinking, oh my goodness, this is, I'm building this on me, you know, w- what should we be looking for? Why don't we start with like value and understand how to value a firm like an architecture firm uh, what does that even consist of? Sure. So, I mean, a typical professional services firm will trade on what's called an earnout, where the there's a value placed on a business. Uh, usually, it's a multiple of your profit. Oftentimes, it's weighted over a two or three year period, so you can kind of normalize and get a sense of like what's the ongoing profitability of this company. And then an acquirer will come in and say, great, we're, you know, we let's just throw out a number. Let's say they, they value your firm at five times EBITDA, as an example, five times pre-tax profit. Uh, and they will say, great, we're going to pay you, you know, 30% of that money up front. And then over the next five years, we'll continue to pay the rest of that money if you hit certain thresholds along the way. Usually those thresholds are profitability. And so you're effectively selling your business over many years. That deal isn't great from an architect's point of view because effectively you're shouldering all the risk and you lose total control. So most of your value is still on the come in the future, if you will, over the next five years, yet you don't control your business anymore. As a division of another firm, you've effectively given up control. And, and that can be really problematic, especially for entrepreneurial or, you know, individuals who, who thrive on the freedom and the independence of entrepreneurship. So that's the typical formula, I think, for, uh, for valuing and selling an architectural firm. I think the, the, the secret and what we try to talk about is to, is to get and to maximize the proportion of your deal that gets paid up front. So to go from, for example, 30% and 70% at risk to maybe getting 80% of your money up front and only 20% at risk. And, and that's where some of these big structural changes you need to make are required because to get 80% of your money up front or, or even more, the acquirer really needs to look at your firm and say, this thing will run just perfectly without the founding partner. And if the answer to that question is yes, an 80-20 deal is realistic. And if the answer to the question is it will fail without the founder, the creative visionary, the genius, unfortunately, it's not going to sell or trade with much money up front. Most of it's going to be at risk. And so I think, again, our our job is to, is to try to change the dynamics and get more of our money up front by making the case to an acquirer that it can thrive without the creative genius that's... Uh, the namesake of the company oftentimes. So so what I'm hearing, John, is that in order for us to have value in our firms beyond ourselves as the as the owner, it needs to be profitable, first of all, right? And the more profit, the more value, right? And then the second thing is that it needs to be able to run without the founding partner. You should be able to go on vacation for three months and everything stays the same. 
right? Correct. Which means that you need to build systems. You need to have systems in place that uh, the work is delegated to people in your on your team uh, or automated through some sort of system and some sort of software. Uh, so, so none of it is reliant on, on you, including the work that's coming in, right? The sales process, that sales system, the marketing system, um, the financial management system, the, the invoicing and the payments, all of that has to be delegated or automated uh, in order for this to work beyond you. Right, John? That's, that's exactly right. Great distillation. And when, when I think architects hear that, Mark, they're going to go, like, I could never do it. Like, like each project's different. Each client has a unique need. Every system, I, I'd be spending now until eternity building systems that no one would follow because there's so much diversity in running an architectural firm. And it's the same in most professional services contexts. I mean, I, I felt it in, in market research. Every client had a different issue. Every customer had some unique. And so here's the thing. I think in order to build those systems that you describe, you've got to narrow what you do. And, and mm -hmm. this is the rub for most architectural firms. In fact, any creative business, call it an advertising agency, graphic design studio, copywriters, anything where creativity is at the essence of what you do, the idea of narrowing down what you do is an anathema to the psyche of the individuals running the firm. I mean, you don't become an architect because you like putting a widget in the same spot every single moment, right? There's a creativity to it. There's a problem solving. And that's where the rub is. And that's why I think so few architectural firms ever become the businesses that get 80% of their cash up front because they, they're not willing to make the trade-off necessary about narrowing your focus. So when I say narrowing your focus, I, I mean really becoming an expert at a form of architecture, a type of project where you can get some reps in, your employees and your juniors can get some repetitiveness, like they can actually get some level of expertise. Um, it's taken you 20, 30, 40 years to become an amazing architect you've got to somehow consolidate or shorten that time frame, And the only way you could do that is giving people reps. And the only way you get reps is doing the same kind of project again and again. Yeah. I, and listeners to this podcast will recognize that call to action. Oh. I've been talking about <laughs> like tar target <laughs> market and ideal clients over and over and over again. And that's something that architects, as you're recognizing, um, it's difficult for a lot of architects. Architects are creatives. They want to be generalists. They want to do it all. They just want to problem solve anything, right? If there's a problem, I want to solve it. It's just, it's, they, they, they want to be able to uh, be flexible and have the freedom to design any project that comes along. Let's take a break to thank our sponsors for their support of this episode. BIM can be important for your next project but it's not the only thing you need for your next project. That's why it's important that 95% of manufacturers who offer free BIM files on RCAT also offer another type of data or information that your project may need. That means 95% of the products with BIM also have CAD files, are in a specification, in a patented spec wizard, or may have product information to help you make the right selection. So stop going to a site with just BIM and go to rcat.com to get everything you need for your next project for free and without registering. No cost, no credit card, no email, it's free. 
That's rcat.com, A-R-C-A-T.com. When building a business you're passionate about, it's easy to feel like there aren't enough hours in the day. And if you're doing all the invoicing and accounting on your own, you're probably spending time on work you don't love. FreshBooks is built for business owners like us. It's the all-in-one accounting software that saves entrepreneurs and freelancers up to 11 hours a week. That's 11 hours that you could spend nailing a client pitch, designing your next project, or building your business as an architect. From preparing, sending, and following up on invoices, to tracking and managing expenses, to processing online payments, FreshBooks automates and simplifies all the tough and annoying parts of running your own business. So try FreshBooks for free for 30 days. No credit card required. Go to entrearchitect.com FreshBooks and enter Entree Architect in the How Did You Hear About Us section and get more time back to build the business you love. That's entrearchitect.com slash FreshBooks. Please visit our platform sponsors today and thank them for supporting you, the Entree Architect community. A lot of them feel that there's fear involved in that, right? That if I narrow down to one industry or one building type, if we have a pandemic, let's say, um, or a, a recession, um, and that market weakens, and now I'm an expert in that market, then I have a problem. Um, and we've talked about that before as well, that the, if that market shrinks, then if you're the expert, you get all the work in that market. Um, so again, we have another expert coming on the podcast saying, you need to mar- narrow your focus. You need to create a target market. You need to have an ideal client and understand that ideal, ideal client um, so you can build systems around it, so you can have value, so which when you're ready to exit, you have value to sell. Yeah, and I, and I think, look, I think some architects hearing that message again might kind of roll their eyes and say, yeah, but I just, it doesn't appeal to me. Like, I, I, you know, at my core, I'm a creative. And, and what you're saying, I get it, I understand it intellectually, but I don't, I, I don't, I don't want to become just a, the McDonald's of architecture. I, I want to be a creative. Here's, here's what I would say in response to that. I remember uh, going, this goes back 20 years or more, I was invited to something called the Birthing of Giants. Can you imagine a more pretentious <laughs> name, Mark? It was, it was 60 entrepreneurs and we'd all been selected to go to this, this thing on uh, at MIT's executive education campus. It's beautiful, ivy strewn, you know, like exec ed campus. And, and I was there with 60 other entrepreneurs and we got to hear some amazing speakers. Pat Lynchoni talked about, you know, building a team. We had Jack Stack talk about like employee um, ownership and it's amazing. And in walks this guy named Stephen Watkins and he strolls to the microphone and says, all right, how many of you are involved in selling and marketing your services or product? And like all of us, like little school children, like beckoning to be called, you know, by the teacher through our hands in the air saying, you know, pick me, you know, I'm involved, I'm involved in the, and we were sort of proud of that. Right. Right. He said, all right. Put your hands down. He said, you've got all the right skills. You've got all the creativity, the, the ability to influence, the ability to market, to sell. You've got all the right skills. You're selling the wrong product. Hire salespeople to sell your product and services, you've got to inject that creativity and marketing panache into your company, 
into building the value of your company, making your company an incredible business. And so for those architects who would, who listen to this and they're, and they're saying, I just need to feel like I'm being creative. I get it, but inject that same, that, that scratch that creativity itch into building the value and the marketing and the sales of your architectural firm, uh, the marketing funnels, the systems, like make them as creative as you can possibly be. And I think you might feel like you're at least somewhat scratching that itch while building a valuable company at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. And you'll be earning more money, right? So the, the business will be more profitable. You personally will be earning more money. And then you, maybe you can be creative in some other way because the business is focused on one thing, but maybe you can pull a little bit of money out and do a little project here and there to sort of explore those ideas that you have. You'll have a lot more fun as an architect because your business will be running smoothly. Um, there's so many advantages to it. And you'll retain all your equity. Here's the thing. In professional services, again, it doesn't matter if it's an architectural firm, law firm, graphic design studio, the only way you can attract senior talent is by making them a partner. The reason for that is because you're a mile wide in terms of services. You're offering way too many things. And the only people that can be that agile that can be that experience to like redesign a, a church, you know, that's going to be made into a condo and then like a sports stadium. The only people with that level of degree of, of, of capacity are seasoned architects. And they look at you and say, why would I join your firm? I'll just go do it on my own. And therefore, the only way you could track them to your firm, and it's the same with law firms and every professional service, is give them equity. And so now you're a minority shareholder, or you've sliced the equity in half. You, maybe you're a bigger business, more prestigious business, but you've given away much of your equity. Again, the only way you can attract people, if you haven't done the work of creating the systems, niching down, figuring out how to do some of this stuff, is to make them a partner. And then, then you're just running on a, on a treadmill to nowhere in the sense that you're just making, you're, you know, you're diluting yourself with every new partner you bring on. Yeah. So let's say, let's say we have a firm now that, that is fully systemized, systemized, right? They, they have their, their systems in place. They have automation. Their, their team knows what they need to do. There's lots of profit. Everything's working well. Um, it's time to, to move on to the next season in their life and they want to exit the firm. Um, how do you actually establish the value and, and they take it to the next step where, you know, either sell it or, 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 you know, transition it to the next generation in the firm? How do you go about doing that? Is that just a matter of, you know, a, a formula at that point? <clears throat> Yeah, no, I mean, a lot of industries, including architecture, will have a prevailing, you know, formula by which that those companies trade at. But that fails to really take into consideration what makes your firm unique. And in many cases, right. you don't necessarily want to be pigeonholed in that way. I would recommend that you create a marketplace for your firm. What do I mean by that? I mean, get multiple bidders for your firm so that you can see what the prevailing market is for right now. Yep. The opposite of that is called a proprietary deal where you fall into bed with one firm and they buy you. The problem with a proprietary deal is often that you get retraded on. Retrading is what happens between the letter of intent in an acquisition offer and the final share purchase agreement. A letter of intent, when you sign it, you agree to a certain price for your firm, whatever, we're going to pay five times EBITDA and you're going to get 60% of it up front. That all gets done in the letter of intent. Then the acquirer has, say, two months to 
investigate your company. And if they know that they're the only acquirer at the table, that you've fallen into love with them, they're likely to retrade. They might legitimately retrade because you miss your numbers during that 60 day, but right. more likely they will illegitimately retrade, which is they will lower the price because they know they're only the only game in town. And so to avoid retrading, I think what you want is to get at least two or three offers. And that's only possible if you actually kind of shop your business effectively to a group of potential buyers. Right. So it's like selling a house. If you have one customer, you're going to get not going to get the best price for that house, but if you have three customers, they all want it. Um, you've you've not only built the business, but you are now demonstrating the systems. You're showing them how it works. You're showing them how good the system is, how the business, how profitable, and why it's so profitable. You market it just like you would market a product, and now you have three people, three firms that are all interested. They all want this system. You know this business built on systems. Uh, they see the the value and the profit then they start, I want, you know, they start bidding against each other. Yeah, I think, I think I would, I, I agree with you to some extent that it is like a house in the sense that you want to create a market, you want to have an offer date and you want to get people sort of excited and, and bidding one off the other. Absolutely. Where it might just be slightly different than a home sale is when a home is purchased and you sign that purchase agreement, you're effectively committed legally to buy that home. Again, we're neither of us are lawyers to my knowledge, <laughs> so no. I don't want to go too far out of my depth. Yep. But in a, in a home sale, you know, you're making a legal commitment to buy that home. In a business sale, the same kind of horse trading back and forth happens. But the letter of intent that is signed is almost always a non-binding letter of intent, meaning there is no legal obligation for the acquirer to consummate the deal, which is why retrading happens. Yep. It's a 60-day period for them to kind of investigate what you know is going on in your business. And at the end, they have the opportunity to walk away without obligation or retrade. And again, if they if you haven't done a good enough job creating kind of tension at the front of the process, their likelihood to retrade at the end is much higher. Yeah, yeah, very, very interesting. Is there anything else that that architect business owners should be paying attention to, whether they are at the early stages of building that business or starting to look at the end of their their careers? Well, I mean, you know, and this one's strong cheese for a lot of uh, architects and anyone in the professional services space is is you want recurring revenue. And, and I think that's a really tough thing for a lot of architects to get their head around because every project's different. Every client's yeah. unique. You don't build a home every day. You don't build a, a shopping plaza every day. It's a, it's a, it is a challenging thing to get your head around. But if you're able to create some recurring revenue, uh, you will find that that juices the value of your company. It also makes it more predictable. And I think the, the biggest mistake we make as entrepreneurs is we try to create a recurring revenue stream for all of our customers. And that's almost always a definition for a diluted, crappy recurring revenue model. What I think yeah. I would encourage you to do is look at all the types of people who buy from you. So you probably have property developers buy from you, probably have homeowners buy your services. You know, you're like all the different types of people that buy architectural services and, and, and try to figure out what is the, the reason they are buying from me? Like what's triggering them to buy? And what you may find is that there is a way to uh, create a recurring offering of some sort 
in one of those segments. I would not, I would be surprised if all of them were, right. but in one of them. I'll give you an example outside of architecture, but I'll, I think it serves to illustrate the point. The business of selling flowers is one of those crappy businesses where very, very lumpy, right? Mother's Day, Valentine's Day is when it all happens. Um, you've got a lot of inventory that rots in the fridge. 60% of the typical flower store's inventory gets thrown out every month because it's rotting the fridge. They buy the wrong number of flowers. Architects listening to this will go, well, but I don't have inventory. But, but you do. You have your employees' time. And if they're not on a project, they're basically you know, right. uh, lost revenue. And so... These guys, Panda and Burkhart, Brian Burkhart and, and Sonia Panda came along and said, okay, we're going to get in the business of selling flowers, but we're going we're gonna to do it on a recurring basis. And so they looked at all the people who buy flowers, you know, Mother's Day, Valentine's Day, graduation, and they realized that there's this one little segment of customers that buy regularly. And it turns out those are hotels. Hotels buy flowers on a regular cadence because if you show up at the Ritz-Carlton in Chicago, they're going to have a bouquet of flowers on their table. Or the reception desk. And so Sonia Pan and Brian Burkhart built a subscription company for selling flowers to hotels. Every two weeks, they get rid of the old flowers, they replenish them with new flowers. And so again, as you look at your different clients in your firm, looking at their reasons for buying and what you're looking for is someone who has a recurring need for what you offer. Maybe it's a developer that's working in a, you know, a, a, a block of, of homes that, that have a recurring need. Um, that's where I think you might find the raw material or the, the, the kind of spark that gives you an idea for a recurring revenue model. Yeah, that's very interesting. So recurring revenue model adds more value at the end as well as yes. more profit while you're, while you're moving along. Uh, yeah, it makes your business more predictable. Now, again, if you don't have recurring revenue, it doesn't mean your architectural firm is not sellable. Yeah. It just means that it may be at a somewhat less uh, valuation than one that would have some recurring revenue. Right, right. Very, very interesting, John. Um, let's uh, let's wrap up with one last question. What's one thing that a small firm architect can uh, can do today to build a better business for tomorrow? I think it's philosophical. And I think a lot of the people listening to this, I would imagine are parents. And I think if you think of your role as a parent, now some people have lofty expectations for their kids, right? They want them like the star quarterback on Alabama's college football team, or they, you know, they want them to go to Harvard, whatever. Most parents, if they're honest with themselves, they would like to bring kids into the world that are independent, happy, functioning kids. And if they have a, a happy life, they will be fully happy and satisfied with their, their, their role as a parent. Right. I would encourage everybody listening to this to think of their job as the CEO and founder of their architectural firm as being their firm's parent. Your firm is this like grisly 16 year old playing Fortnite in the basement. And your job over the next two or three years is to get them out of the basement to being a functioning adult. And the same skills that you use to build a child into a, an adult that can thrive without you, know, you as their parent are the same philosophy and skills that I think you need to take in your architectural firm. Every decision you make, you want to be saying, taking on this job, taking on this client, hiring this employee, is that going to make my firm more or less dependent on me? And if the answer is more, second guess yourself. If the answer is yes, it's going to make it more less dependent on me. I think you're doing your job as your firm's parent. 
And that's the kind of core idea that I would love to, uh, to leave with your listeners would. Yeah, that's great. I love that, that analogy. I think it's so true. Uh, his name is John Warlow. It's two R's, two L's. It is. Uh, BuiltToSell.com is the website. The book is The Art of Selling Your Business, Winning Strategies and Secret Hacks for Exiting on Top. Go check that out. We'll have links to all of that on the show notes. John, this has been a really great conversation. I really enjoyed hanging out was, with you and talking with you. It was fun to you. get to know you, Mark. It was great. Do this yeah. again sometime. I appreciate it. Thanks for uh, sharing your knowledge here at Entree Architect Podcast. Thanks, Mark. If you liked this episode of Entree Architect Podcast, please share a rating, write a review, and share a link to this episode with a friend. That's how you can help grow Entree Architect Podcast. Thank you to our sponsors, Arcat and FreshBooks for their support of this episode. Links to all our sponsors and all our resources that we discussed today are available at the show notes for this episode found at entrearchitect.com slash podcast. Entree Architect is a member of the Gable Media Podcast Network. Gable Media is curated thought leadership for an audience dedicated to building a better world. That's you. Listen and subscribe to all the shows at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L-Media.com. Go there now. And check out Entree Architect Academy membership. Ready to edit business resources for architects, live monthly business training for architects, a supportive architect community, and simple systems. Our new business system program developed for you, the small firm entrepreneur architect. It's all waiting for you right now at Entree Architect Academy membership, including AIA continuing education learning units. Yep. They are there, there too. Entree Architect is there for you. Come join me and hundreds of your entrepreneur architect friends. Visit entrearchitect.com slash join to enroll today. Thanks for listening today. Love, learn, and share what you know. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything, yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like, 
us? Can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity, where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast, it's a community where dreams meet action. There's a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was, it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is gonna be a priority. When the job is done, we're gonna actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. <laughs> and so for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like, that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.